Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sadman. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. I'm also Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Defense and Security Network's podcast network, available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all the usual places to get your podcasts. Please join us every two weeks for our new episodes of Battle Rhythm, and also check out the other podcasts in our network. Uh, you can find them, again, on our website or at the CDSN Podcast Network on your favorite podcast provider. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located in unceded Algonquin Territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Thank you. Welcome back to the podcast, Lena. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. How are you doing? I'm good, Steve. How are you? I am weary from lots of traveling, but I'm also excited for lots of turkey and family. We're taping this early in the early in the week that is American Thanksgiving, and so I'll be driving down to be with my family as people listen to this podcast. Well, happy Thanksgiving. Happy early Thanksgiving. Thank you. And we're in the same time zone this time. Yes, yes. We're both uh, in the East Coast. So let's get into it. Uh, there's a couple of stories that popped out in the news. Uh-huh. Uh, the first one is military families among Canadians caught up in the benefits mess. So what happened is that the government of Canada transitioned the benefits from the public service health care plan to Canadian to Canada Life. And this was taken over from Sun Life on July 1st, and it didn't go well. Uh, you saw the story. What were your reactions to uh-huh. it? Well, like any big transition, it's going to be a disaster. So <laughs> what, right? Because you're moving essentially, you know, over a million federal workers from one healthcare, health, health, like health benefit system, sorry, to another. So it's going to take time. I, I They knew what they were getting themselves into. So I'm always surprised that they don't anticipate and they don't plan for these transition challenges. At the you know at the end of the day, I really hope that they expedite these benefits for these families and these members, and so they can continue to get the help that they need. Again, it's just a failure of system. You know what's going to happen. You know things are going to either going to be challenges moving from one health provider to another. I'm fairly certain that these insurance companies have done this before, but again, it doesn't surprise me. You know, it's not surprising that these things happen. The question is how, how good is the response when you have these transitions and some people are going to get lost in the shuffle from one place to the other. The question really is, is not that it happens, but how, how many people get, you know, uh, have the coverage screwed up and then how quickly do folks get uh, their situation fixed? I mean, people are still well, talking about like, It sounds like the response has been patchy at best, reading the CBC has done a, a profile on various individuals, various difficulties and challenges across the country. They themselves are family members, and some of the response has been fairly decent. Other has been abysmal. And these are life-altering health supports that they need. So I don't know. Again, reading a story like this, I sort of have to shake my head and, you know, and say to myself, well, of course, of course they dropped the ball on this. You'd think that in, in Canada, when there's 
so many health challenges that lessons learned, things should be put in place. And this is likely not any one of these insurance companies first go at the rodeo. But again, you know, unfortunately, we can sort of wait and see. Um, hopefully, people over at Sun Life know enough about military needs and the supports that are required from these folks and their families that they can sort of push things through fairly quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the thing is that whenever you subcontract out to some private company, it's going to be challenging to get them to do what you need them to do. But on the other hand, I mean, I don't know who's responsible for the Phoenix Mass, but I think I was mostly inside government ultimately in terms of mm-hmm. remediate that. So these kinds of things are inevitable, but as you said, there should be planning, there should be, you know, the ability to quickly fix the problems. Because this is not something that happened overnight, right? It wasn't just, you know, oh, you know, three months from now, we've decided we're going to change from, you know, Sun Life to Canada Life. You know, there's obviously been some planning beforehand. And then the change happened in July and people are getting denied their prescriptions in October. So you would think that yeah. the insurance company would would not have rejection as the default solution to the stuff. But it reminds me of sort of the American case. I've got a friend of mine who's studying the health, the politics of the health insurance company in the United States. And what they do is they, they, you know, they want to reject people so that way they go away. And if they only end up paying off the people who are persistent. And I can't help but think that some of that has, has followed here because, you know, people are getting denied coverage when they apply for stuff and they're not getting explanations. It's just here, you're, you're not getting what you're, what you expected. So you would think that they would learn as you suggested. But I think part of it is, is sort of it isn't the modus operandi of insurance companies is to, to be biased towards saying no. And, and that's a real issue. And we've talked about this in the in the past, Steve, you and I on the podcast around sort of rejection as the default setting for insurance companies. And one of the last times you and I spoke on the podcast was around WSIB and providing, you know, adequate compensation for people who supported our troops overseas. And it tends to be, yeah, the, the default position is that we'll just say no, and then we'll help people away. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll revisit it if you if you uh, persist. But we know that, you know, speaking about, you know, veterans who transition and their, and their family members, that their concerns, like these challenges with accessing and systems concerns just are are on top of a lot of some of the other transition challenges that they they experience. So we're just adding to the burden. And I guess the insurance companies just, again, like you said, hoping that they'll just go away because this is just, you know, another paperwork nightmare for them. So hopefully, you know, with increased attention, media attention, such as this, this piece, we'll, we'll focus on, on what the actual, you know, lived experience has been for these folks. And they'll, the insurance companies will start moving things along a little bit faster. Yeah, it's uh, from the story itself, it's clear that once these people's stories appear in the news, then suddenly they get they get uh, the approval for their their medications mm-hmm. or whatever. It's like, well, I don't think all of us can just have you know a journalist attached to us at all times. To exactly. The, the insurance companies do what they're supposed to do. Well, yeah. that, that that suggests there's a, another health related problem, uh, mm-hmm. which is uh, this has been a problem in the United States, and, and now it's been discussed in Canada more openly which is that in Iraq and Afghanistan, in the United States case, in Afghanistan for the Canadian case, they burnt a lot of stuff in burn pits. They had bonfires at these forward, at these bases, at these forward operating bases. And they, they were used to incinerate all kinds of things, not, not just in waste, but ammunition, food, batteries, pieces of helicopters. And 
So it creates toxic stuff that people then breathe in. And the question then is how do we take care of the people who've been affected by this? So I first learned about these burn pits through a podcast, actually, that John Stewart had done some time ago on uh, the burn pits in the U.S. and the airborne hazards and, and all the, the chemicals and everything that comes out of this and how ill people have become. So doing a little bit of work in, you know, public safety personnel, health and safety, you know, we know that firefighters are at higher risks for job-related cancers than, than most other professions. So in Canada, I just recently read that cancer kills Canadian firefighters about three times more often than the general population. And these folks are kitted up. They've got the gear, they've got respiratory gear. I don't suspect that these folks that are dumping these materials into these burn pits are equipped the same way. And as a result, yes, they're going to be at increased risk for all sorts of, you know, cancers, I'm assuming, and, you know, lung difficulties, you know, respiratory illnesses. And so we know this from the studies that they've done in the States and the presumptive legislation that has gone through, through the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs that, yes, you know, you are at increased risk and we will support that. It's interesting reading this piece that there's so little known about what that impact has been on Canadian soldiers and, and, per, and military personnel. So I don't know what sort of the next steps are. Are people going to be doing more Canadian-based research? I just feel like that's not a that's not something that we know know much about. Yeah, well, the challenge is that there's a lot of things going on. Um, so it's sometimes hard to separate out exposure to this versus exposure to other things. I was just going to say that Biden was more motivated by this because his son died from a condition that might have been caused by burn pits. So that put more pressure on the U.S. government to do something about it. Well, I really, I think that there could be a lot of learning that can be done looking at the, you know, the, the firefighter health data that we have in Canada and assuming that the folks that were involved in bringing things to the burn pits in Canadian operations, that we might be able to to learn a little bit more to understand. And again, there's presumptive legislation for uh, public safety personnel, uh, given that the, the nature of the work that they do. I don't see why there should be any problems with setting up the same precedent for Canadian veterans who, who've had similar exposure. Yeah, again, I mean, people talk about our healthcare system as being better than the American healthcare system. Obviously, we'd hope that we'd be doing, uh, you know, these people would get the coverage so that way they, they wouldn't have to, you know, pay out of pocket. For have them. to prove, yeah, have, have to, to prove that. Prove yes, uh, it seems pretty straightforward. I, I don't, I mean, I did just speak about, you know, are we going to do more research on it? But we know what happens to people when they're exposed to this level of hazards in and airborne hazards in environment. So if we know this already, why don't we just take the existing science and create some sort of presumptive legislation for these people. So that's the thing. And, and I'm surprised that this recently made the news, that this is something that's new. I guess in my naive head, you know, well, of course we know we know this and it's it's in place in Canada. So I was a little bit surprised that this is not the norm in within military health here in Canada. Well, the thing is, we know, you know, it's like crime. We know when somebody's guilty, but we have to prove it. Yes. With, with this kind of thing. We know it, but we haven't proved it. And so that leads to the healthcare 
providers, whether that's insurance companies or the Veterans Administration, whoever else, being reluctant to change their policies in anticipation of some future when the science is clear. The challenges in both of these stories is if you give somebody an excuse to say no, they'll say no because they're yeah. spending the money. Well, this is, I mean, to me, you know, looking, knowing what I know, looking at the research that has been done in similar areas, I think there's grounds to expedite some sort of policy. I mean, otherwise you've got folks that are waiting and, and suffering. So, I mean, that's just me and my idealistic sort of healthcare. I had a magic wand. <laughs> world. There's some things that would change. Because to me, you know, as a, as a health scientist, it's obvious, right? Yes gives them you know insurance companies and, and whatnot have they've got their reasons to say no but the longer we wait i'm just again i can't i just going back to just sort of my surprise that this is not something that's already on our radar why don't we have presumptive legislation for burn pits we knew they happened we know they cause cancer so this article where it's just like oh yeah someone's like you know brought this up and we're gonna you know we need to 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 advocate for, for more research i just assumed that it was a given yeah. Well, we have a common theme in today's stories because the third story that we wanted to talk about is mm -hmm. uh, Murray Brewster published a, a story saying that an historian uh, who works at the Royal Military College, Sean Maloney, was essentially given the job by the King Army in D&D to write a history mm -hmm. of the Afghan war and of Canada's involvement in the Afghan war. And they pretty much buried it. There's only 1,600 copies of the history that exist somewhere. Uh, they aren't circulated. They're not making it easy for people to purchase it. And apparently, you know, they're uncomfortable with the fact that he wrote a book that was had some criticisms of the Canadian effort. But history, a real history, should not be just a, a whitewash of, of the past. It reminds me of something I've talked about before in the podcast, that when I was working on my own book on, on, on NATO, Canada, Afghanistan, I learned that there had been a whole-of-government whole exercise to learn lessons from the war, but that that document was classified. And it was classified so that way not only could I not get access to it, but that the people actually doing work on Canada and Afghanistan, even inside the government, couldn't access it. And so mm -hmm. I filed a freedom of access, a freedom of information request. Took four years to get it. And when I got the document, it was even more depressing than the fact that this thing had been classified, which is it was 10 pages long. And it was almost entirely Canada, you know, patting itself on the back for the war. And there was really no lessons to be learned. Really? Really. And so what we have here is consistency over time, because this book that was commissioned was commissioned after long after that report was done. And, mm -hmm. you know, so they said, hey, we might have the history of the war, but let's not, let's not criticize ourselves about it. Actually, I'm sorry. This was commissioned in 2007, so it was commissioned before the report, but it only came out a few years ago, or only completed a couple years ago. And basically, it seems like the government is afraid to be told not everything was sunshine. That means we can't learn lessons, we can't hold anybody accountable, we can't avoid those mistakes in the future because we know what they are. And Sean Maloney has a pretty clear track record. I've read some of his early, uh, other works on, on Canada and Afghanistan. And but what's his track record? Like his track just record is, is, is somebody who, is, who uses his academic freedom to okay. provide a pretty clear-eyed vision of what happened. His mm -hmm. other work on Afghanistan is fair and what we, what you mean by fair is that it says you know here's the things that went well and here's the things that didn't go okay. well and so if you do that with a history you're going to piss some people off because you're identifying mistakes that's a real problem 
for those in power who don't want to be uh, held responsible. So is Sean Maloney being asked to write this back in 2007? Was that, I wonder if the government realized what sort of an even approach he does to reporting on historical events. Well, part of it was he was asked by the head of the army at the time, Andrew Leslie. Okay. And Andrew Leslie's not in the army anymore. He's not chief of the army anymore. And I'm not sure that, you know, this was a policy that had been agreed to by the government power. It was certainly not agreed to the, the government of power today compared to the government power 60 mm, years ago. Okay. So, you know, they, they made a commitment to publish this book. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, somebody made a commitment to publish this book. And then when the book was actually done, people were like, oh, crap, what did somebody agree to? Yeah. But again, I think the one of the challenges Canada has is it's one of the least transparent democracies around. We're afraid to take any criticism uh, because, oh, no, suddenly it'll become talked about question period. Mm-hmm. I think the only way to learn is to face one's mistakes and to have a critical perspective of what you've done, what you've done well, what you've done poorly. Afghanistan, we lost. And the stuff that we did to build a, a self-sustained Afghan government did not lead to a self-sustained Afghan government. And that was a major enterprise that cost over 160 Canadian soldiers and uh, government officials' lives, cost billions of dollars. Now it makes sense to take a serious look at what happened. And Sean Maloney is a serious historian. I'm not sure I would, you know, if he put out, a, if I got a chance to read this book, I'm not sure I agree with everything, but I, I don't want to necessarily agree with everything. I want the... Right. The, the thing to provide me with new fact and the facts I didn't know about, put it into a pattern to make clear what were sort of the dynamics that led to this intervention. What we, what, you know, what did the Canadian forces do well? What did the other actors in the Canadian government do well and do poorly? And move on from there. And if we can't, you know, examine a war that we've now left, you know, we left it essentially 2014 or 2011, but out of account, you know, something that was mostly done by a prior government. If we can't face the, the reality of that, then we can't face the reality of anything going on today. That's just not the way democracy should work. You need to hold people accountable. You need to know what's going on so that we have trust in government. You trust government when you actually know they're not hiding stuff from you. I mean, I'm fairly new to the scene, right? I'm fairly new to all of this, having, you know, finished my PhD in the last five years. So I'm I'm fairly new. So I'm not familiar with how governments have handled you know, being pushed to reflect and pushed to be critical of their own actions, government as in government of Canada, and yes, of different governments throughout that that time period. But what I have noticed in my short time in this area is that, you know, they they enjoy the, the self-congratulatory back patting. Quite a bit. I've sat through various meetings where, you know, government officials have done a really lovely job at congratulating all the great stuff that they've done without taking into careful consideration of the mistakes being made. It gets, you know, for the lack of a better word, whitewashed. It gets sort of brushed over. And, you know, we're gonna move, we're gonna move on, but look at this, all this great stuff that we did. What strikes me about this is the, I, I believe there's like a huge disclaimer at the front of the book saying, these are all the, we don't necessarily agree with everything. You know, and sort of being very arm's length, even though he was requested by the government to take into account what had happened in Afghanistan. So it's interesting for me as, you know, as a a new kid in this in this sphere to see how there is this this pattern of we're going to, as a government, 
demonstrate our eagerness to be reflective and to engage non-government types, you know, critical academics to review and evaluate and to share, you know, through their lens, our actions. But when that actually comes out and not in the favor, that doesn't necessarily put all government decisions in the best light, there is this attempt to, you know, to turn away, to buffer, to delay, to, you know, smooth over, you know, and I think you're right, it, it is highly problematic. It makes me think of about parenting and how, you know, I tell my kids, you know, you learn from your mistakes, let's think, sit and think about it. And, you know, we'll do better next time. It seems like such a basic fundamental step to growing and doing better. So now, you know, I'm quite curious. I am eager to get my hands on this. And when <laughs> I do, I'll share it with you. Yeah, I, I'd like to get my hands on this book just to see how it jives with the work, the, the way I understand the war. Uh, as I said, I've read a bunch of Maloney's earlier books. And he, he was writing histories of the war while it was in process. Uh, so mm -hmm. some of the stuff is not going to be a huge of a surprise. But, it, it's, it, you know, obviously forbidden fruit is always um, more uh, attractive. So in some ways, the government has, you know, created more interest in this book than otherwise would be the case. Exactly. I mean, it, the book was, quote, quietly released. Well, the fact that, you know, you, you brought it up. And, you know, I had I had heard, you know, the, the CBC podcast on it piqued my interest. I didn't know this was happening. Um, I wasn't familiar with with uh, Sean Maloney, but now I am and now I'm piqued. Well, I appreciate the time you had uh, this week with us to talk about these things. It's always a pleasure to hang out with you, Lena. Thanks, I do want to, before we go, I do want to sell people on the year ahead. Our conference on the May, is on December 7th. We we're also having a book launch December 6th at the Legasse and Junot second volume of Canadian Defense Policy is coming out. We're going to have the Chief of Defense Staff, uh, Wayne Eyre, at the book launch on the evening of December 6th. And then we're going to have the Year Ahead event on December 7th. People can find more information about both events at the CDSN website. Pretty excited about our December because those two events are really going to be terrific. Well, it was great speaking to you, Steve. Always a pleasure hanging out with you, Lena. Enjoy the holidays. Uh, I've already started my baking. I hope that you... Oh. Uh, can start your I will your, your eating of, of of sweets. Yes, most definitely. After the grants are done, give me ten days. <laughs> give me ten days. Uh, grant deadlines. I'm in between right now, but next winter will be a grant writing nightmare. Anyway, always a pleasure. Uh, good luck with everything, and I look forward so to you. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. Well, as it turns out, as we put together this week's podcast, the interviews that we had scheduled didn't work out. And so what we thought we'd do instead is have uh, us play uh, some interviews with the Halifax International Security Forum fellows, a group of women that we interviewed in 2019. Why? Because over the past couple of weeks, I've been seeing a lot of pictures from this year's international fellows. Every year, the Halifax Forum brings together senior female officers from across NATO and beyond. And we were really impressed with the women that we met several years ago. They were sharp, engaging the future of their Canadian armed forces. And since I was watching Canada's own Kelly Williamson, who was part of our Summer Institute, post lots of pictures about this year's uh, experiences as they toured North America. It reminded me of, of meeting such great women back uh, four years ago. So instead of our fresh new interview segment, we're going to bring back 
So these interviews we had several years ago. So I, I think you'll find this very interesting. Uh, let us know what you think. As always, thanks for listening to the podcast. And for those of you who celebrate, happy American Thanksgiving as I'm recording this from Philadelphia. Thanks a lot. Take care. I am Colonel Deborah Levitt from the United States Air Force, currently the Director of Human Capital for the United States Space Command. And I'm Eleanor Buchold O'Sullivan. I'm an Air Commodore of the Royal Netherlands Air Force, and for um, my job is I'm being the commander of Cyber Command of the Armed Forces. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Joanna Polakowskina uh, from Lithuania. I'm an Army officer, and currently I'm a senior instructor at the Staff's uh, Officers Course in Military Academy. I'm Colonel Lisanne Martel from the Royal Canadian Air Force, and I'm currently the Director of Air Force Professional Development both for officer and non-commissioned members. So I'm uh, Colonel Dr. Lale Bartoszek from the Joint Medical Service in Germany. I'm currently working at the Federal Ministry of Defense um, as Chief of Branch for Recruitment and um, Marketing. Colonel uh, Søren Flock, pilot at the French Air Force, currently posted in Paris in the headquarters at a joint level. Captain Rachel Durbin from the Australian Navy. I'm an engineer. I work in our um, Navy Capability Development, and my job at the moment is the Director of the Future Force Lifecycle Engineering. Captain Fiona Shepard from the British Royal Navy. I'm a logistics officer by trade, and my job is to uh, support all, run, all the Royal Navy uh, units around the world 24-7 with uh, logistics capability. Uh, Brigadier Lisa Ferris, I'm the Director of Defence Legal Services. I'm in the New Zealand Army, and the uh, m- most near equivalent in Canadian terms would be the JAG for the Armed Forces. And my name is Paz Magat. I'm a civilian, and I'm the Director of the Peace with Women Fellowship. How much need is there for a JAG in the uh, New Zealand Army when there's only, like, 10,000 people in the military, how much trouble can they get into? I think a JAG is more than just uh, soldiers, sailors and air personnel getting into trouble, but military justice is the foundation for the armed forces. You know, without disciplined, a disciplined armed force, you wouldn't have a successful armed force, and that holds true no matter what the size of the armed forces, whether it's 10,000 or whether it's 100,000. I had a really good experience, I guess, almost 10 years ago now, where I was doing research on NATO in Afghanistan, and I went to Australia and New Zealand to talk to some partners of the effort to figure out whether there's a difference between partners and members. And, and I really benefited from the fact that it was a small military because I talked to five colonels about the Afghanistan effort and I just needed to talk to those five colonels to get really a good picture of, of what was going on there. I really uh, enjoyed my time in Wellington. So I, mean, I don't mean to pick on the small size of, of, of uh, New Zealand. Has, uh, what is this fellowship and, and how did, does this come to be and how did you pick these people? Well, the program was launched in 2017 by the Halifax International Security Forum as a way to really put their uh, money where their mouth was. At every Halifax International Security Forum, there was a panel on gender and inclusivity, and they said this needs to be more than an hour uh, spent on an annual basis. We could do more than this. And that's why they launched the fellowship. Uh, We ran it for the first time in 2018 with seven fellows uh, from across uh, the NATO uh, alliance. And we really aimed to develop a program that expands upon the the knowledge and networks that they already have to expose them beyond the silos that they can easily get into given their uh, job descriptions and to also create a space 
for women at senior levels to be able to network with each other because that's such a rarity in and of itself. When you attend the Halifax International Security Forum and you see this number of women in their uniform walking together, there's also sort of a subversive message that we're sending (laughs) saying that, guess what? There are more voices who can come to this table. And we're trying to visually display that message as well as the substantive contributions they make at the event itself. Yeah, I can't help but think of some of those panels I've seen on gender where they have four men and so it's, it's the idea of having this phalanx of women in, in, in uniform walking around, I think, would be most impressive. Lisa, so what has been sort of one of the big takeaways from your travels thus far? Well, I think, Ed, you know, the networking and just the relationship building amongst the group has been fantastic. But other key highlights uh, for me have been, obviously, the concepts of gender and identity that we learnt in the U.S., the issues of technology, data and security issues uh, seem to be Uh, magnifying exponentially. In fact, one of the the key sort of phrases that I heard that uh, cyber and data security is not just an issue for the military and defence industry, it's an issue for society as a whole. And that really resonated with me, that it's not just people in uniform that have to be concerned about it, it's it's the whole nation. A lot of people see that the threat to information and security is actually emanating from from Silicon Valley, whether it's Google or Facebook or Twitter and how they treat information. Did you get a sense that they were explaining well their stances on these things, or did you feel they were defensive about uh, about the situation? You know, they were very open and um, free and frank with us, but I think, the, as with anything, there's two sides to every story. You know, there are those that want to develop the best and brightest technology, but ha- that has to go hand in glove with the security sector. And, of course, the legal framework has to underpin that. And that, for me, as a lawyer, is, is of greatest interest. So did you see a lot of legal problems while you were there? There are a lot of legal challenges, <laughs> definitely. I'm a lawyer. We pick out legal challenges all the time. But there are also those that are working actively to provide solutions. And I think that's where we need to get to, not just to identify problems and challenges and concerns, but also look to the next step and say, what are the solutions to these? And Paz, do these women help you identify for you sort of the, the challenges that, that you're facing in organi- as part of an organizer of the conference? That has been, they made you rethink how the forum should be handled? Absolutely. I mean, you know, we like to think of ourselves at Halifax International Security Forum as setting the agenda of of topics that need to be discussed uh, on an international scale. But the fellowship also informs us because we are with them for an extended period of time. It's not just conversations at meetings. It's conversations over meals and um, in the bus from point A to point B on airplanes that we have a little bit more of an ear to the ground from a very multinational perspective that we contribute back into the Halifax International Security Forum itself uh, to try to help shape those conversations in a more uh, inclusive manner. What have you learned about leadership, uh, Paz, from these incredible leaders? I think leadership uh, that we've seen through this program, not just this year but last year as well, is that there are many different ways to define what leadership can be. Um, Over the course of the program, the phases of leadership that we see amongst the fellows is also a lot of fun to witness. In the beginning, people who are used to being in charge all the time have to take a step back, and that's a hard thing for them to do sometimes. And they have to learn to trust each other, that things are going to go well because they're in it together as a team. We've learned a lot about, you know, do you lead from behind, from up front? Where's the most effective approach? And as somebody who is not a military person, I've had to learn how to interact with serious leaders in in this capacity, uh, which is a lot of fun to try to navigate. But I think everybody showed up to this program with such a positive mindset. I'm really eager to uh, learn things and learn from each other that it seems pretty effortless and 
you know, I really get to enjoy being part of this program. It's like I, get, it's like I get to go on the fellowship too, <laughs> um, but learn so much more because of the depth of experience sitting around a table. Fantastic. I want to thank you for organizing uh, this roundtable, essentially, this speed dating of podcast <laughs> interviews. So what are you doing in Canada this week? A lot of mis- or a lot of meetings, mainly pr- um, focused on the Canadian defense. Just looking at because we already did the U.S., so we spent time in Washington D.C. Met with uh, the folks in the Pentagon, met with think tankers, uh, just met with people very much involved with the U.S. security aspect. So my anticipation is that we're going to get a lot of the same here in Canada. And so far, can be you met with? We just meet, met with Her Excellency, the, uh, the General Governor. Uh, we did participate to the ceremony this morning for the 11th of November. Oh, fantastic. And, and yeah. do you have any reactions to, to this, uh, the way the Canadians celebrate, I guess, memorialize this day, is that, I guess the right word? Was, was this different from what you were expecting? Is this similar to the way it works in your own country? It's, it's kind of uh, the same, but the, the big difference, I would say, is the, uh, the Silver Cross they, you have inaugurated or you already have it for some years. So that's a very good way of showing the mothers or the sisters or the women actually being the victims of the, the fallen Uh, soldiers in the forces. And I would say it's very different because in the U.S., and I had the opportunity to live in England for two years, so got to see how they do their Remembrance Day ceremonies. So more similar to what I saw in England. In the U.S., it's Veterans Day. We don't even call it Remembrance Day. And it's more, as the name implies, focused on the veterans. So you'll have a lot of parades, um, but nowhere near the same respect and in terms of laying the wreaths, the poppies, that just doesn't exist, I would say, in mass in American culture. Well, I'm a dual citizen, exactly. so that is a big difference between the two countries. Why did you join this program, wandering around uh, North America for three weeks? I was actually uh, just told that you have been picked to be the <laughs> Norway's representative to the program. I don't think it's, uh, well, not that many women at that level in Norway anyway, so that the way of being visible already by working in Oslo, uh, they, uh, I, I know I'm very visible. So I have a good network, and I'm very happy that they actually sent me to this program. Uh, it was a little bit different for me. I think the U.S., from what I've picked up talking with the folks who run the program and some of the selection committee, is that the U.S. is the one that mainly sends the uh, applications to Halifax International Security Forum, and then the selection committee does their rack and stack and picks, but mine was kind of fun because I was in San Antonio on a two-week trip for Air Force business. It was Friday, April 12th, and I get the email from U.S. Southern Command, which is one of my parent commands, saying, hey, would you be interested in applying for this program? Oh, by the way, the application's due on Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was some fun uh, jumping through hoops to get everything, but it just looked like a phenomenal program, and um, anything I can do to try and bring what we learn here back to my organization I think is going to be beneficial. And so what have you learned thus far that you might bring back to your organization? Oh, so much. Uh, we're really... so. So it's, it's perfect timing because something that's being rolled out in the U.S. right now is our, um, the DOD's uh, Department of Defense's um, National Action Plan on Women, Peace, and Security. We had a great, great session at the U.S. Institute of Peace that was very much focused on women, peace, and security, and just some of the different ways or different lenses that you can look at it through um, in terms of how to best incorporate 
you know, these forgotten populations, for a lack of a better term, um, into operational plans. Where I work at Special Operations Command South, we support um, Latin America primarily. Um, so we've got uh, special operations troops working with, you know, the Colombians, the Chileans, um, the Salvadorians, the Hondurans, etc. And so trying to get more of that lens to realize that conflict affects more than just the men, that there are other populations populations that need to be considered. So um, that's one of the big things that I plan to take back. All right. And what, what have you uh, drawn from? Uh, a lot of things to take back, in fact, but Norway is a small country, so I can't actually adapt everything into, the, into a small nation. And how we do business is very different from U.S., but uh, there are aspects when it comes to gender, technology, and how you integrate industry at a very early stage when it comes to development of uh, of requirements and don't do the business yourself in in the armed forces but use the industry and save time uh, to get the good platforms because they know it the best. What does it mean to be in charge of human capital? (laughs) It's a very good question and if you have any answers I would greatly appreciate a response. Um, Actually right now it's the stand-up of a brand new organization in the in the Department of Defense for the United States. And so basically for now, it is setting up the organizational structure and then hiring in all of the talent that we're going to need to set up this organization. And this organization is the Space Force? It's not the Space Force. It is the Combatant Command, United States Space uh, Command. Space Force will be a little bit different. It is not yet uh, written into law. But this is the warfighting arm of space, which is, uh, which is an avenue that I know m- most other countries are looking at taking Uh, at this point. Um, But based on the number of vulnerabilities that dependencies that we have on space right now, this is of great interest for um, all of us to pay attention to. And so I think this is a good step forward. I've got friends of mine in the the D.C. National Security Community who are most concerned about the uniforms for for Space Force and whether they'll be uh, naval officers or Air Force ranks. What is the best terminology for them? Because they imagine from the past science fiction about what we can do best to go forward. But we'll leave this topic for now. Uh, Eleanor, you work on cyber issues. Has Netherlands been particularly uh, plagued by cyber attacks, or has it been sort of left in the background? No, I think we are being played as a plague, as well as any other country is. And I guess one of the questions I have is, when Canada is doing cyber defense thinking, it seems to almost be uh, talking about uniform people in uniform, and then do we have to have the same kind of standards? Because our stereotypes of people who are at best at cyber in North America are people who are overweight, sitting in basements, vaping. Do you think that we should have different standards for cyber warriors as for the regular kinds of warriors? Yes, I do. And we are doing that currently. So we're looking very much into different kind of spectrums uh, to find personnel not necessarily will be deployed because they don't uh, meet up to all standards. Uh, but that's okay. Cyber is done behind the desk in the basement sometimes. So we are specifically looking for people who are very intelligent and score high in the autism spectrum and introverts. Uh, that is particularly the group we are focusing on. And so far we're successful in that. Interesting. Along with the other one we're talking with today, I've been traveling around the United States for a couple of weeks. You've just started your trip to Canada. So what did you draw from the American experience? 
thus far. So from the Americans' perspective, um, what I did learn was obviously there's a, a diverse community with many different um, alternative views of what we do as far as national security. Also important for us to remember that as we are making our strategy and as we are addressing the public and developing strategic messaging. So very critical. Curious as to which group of people you found to be uh, most out of your expectations. So I would have to say the Silicon Valley trip. The environment there is obviously leading edge of technology, and they look at things with a slightly different lens than we do in the national security environment. And so rather than threats, perhaps, they see opportunities. And so there are some divergent views of maybe some of the relationships that we have out around the globe. This was my third time in Silicon Valley, so I had a a little bit of different experience, but if I go through my notes, I think that the, what I will take home is that my notes are probably the same as if I would have talked to Dutch people on the same topics. So if there's that much understanding of what is happening in the world, mm-hmm. we should do a better job working together. <laughs> Were there any surprises along the way in the travels to the United States? Uh, well, actually, what surprised me the most is the cohesion of the group. I've never in my career been with so many women uh, so long. <laughs> And in my head, going on a trip for four weeks with only women, that was set up for failure. (laughs) But we're two weeks down the road now, and I am extremely comfortable with this group. They're really talented, gifted female officers, and it's an honor to travel with them and get to know know them. Uh, When you go back and engage in your coursework or in helping the next generation of Air Force officers in their professional development, what are some of the things that you learned on this trip that you uh, would, are going to convey to the next generation? It was very interesting uh, what we were exposed to in a different topic and looking at what's the next threat being, you know, China, Russia, or climate change and, uh, you know, how to include cyber and space. So I've been taking a lot of notes on what is the baseline that we all need, like, in the military to understand, and, and then we all have our specialties. But So that's something I will discuss with the staff, is how much in those topics we need to be familiar with and then let each occupation be more specialized down the road. Yeah, and for myself, I see that we need to improve a little bit program, you know, adding some topics on uh, new topics which influences security situation. And as well, what I found very interesting, what we lack in Lithuania, so it's a mentorship for younger officers or cadets, which is, I think, quite successful example I saw in the back in USA. One of the questions we have is, is as women who've uh, come to the, not quite the peak yet, you still have more promotions ahead of all of you, that the way you've engaged leadership and the way you've discussed leadership with your colleagues here, that, that you find that women lead differently than men? Well, that's a tough thing for me to answer because I don't think I'm that different. I'm me. So when we ask you know, gender issue or why is it better with women? It's not that we do things better. We do things different in some things, and it's the combination. A group is much stronger when you have different talent around the table, that the strengths are, are, are different. So as a, as a group, you're much better. So I think we bring a different perspective. We see things differently because we experience things. Just like any individual, if you had a group of men together, they wouldn't necessarily be cloned of each other. I mean, we all bring our culture, our experience. So we do the same from a woman perspective for me what what i think yes and no yeah probably the military are united with a common ethos so men and women they have something in common and when they do their missions so they just demand 
from themselves and go straight toward the end state. But differently, uh, men and women, I think, have different cognitive skills and they just working in a team, they support each, each other. I think it's uh, the team which are designed both for men and women are more successful than only, either from men, either from women. You've been traveling now for two weeks across the United States. This is your first, kind of your first day engaging people in Canada. Was there a particular favorite spot in the United States for either of you? Well, every day uh, we had some good discussion or being the people we met or the things we saw or what we were exposed to. It's hard to pick a thing that was uh, better than everything. I don't think I can because as I go through the, the various lectures, like, oh, yeah, that was interesting. Oh, that was beautiful. I mean, it was my first time being in D.C. BC, D.C. was very interesting. My first time in Silicon Valley in San Francisco, that was interesting. I think what I enjoyed the most was the people we met and the, the discussion we had on being nuclear weapons or assessment of future threats or technology and from, uh, you know, the day-to-day of, of the Pentagon and the discussion we've had is I've gained so much. Some challenge my baseline understanding, some change shifted my views, and some solidified other things. So it, it's been a, a very good program. During the visits, I was focusing at the particular kind of group of the people, so academic society, people who work for Google, so when they are amazingly different from military, I think that every of us do our job and probably the working for a particular business, so gives us or puts on us some stamp, which is good as well. But when we have a chance to meet other people from other groups, so it's good just to see and to find something what's valuable for us. One thing I'm curious about is this experience of traveling around in a multinational group of women being exposed to both the United States and Canada. Are you finding your common military experiences causing you to see things similarly, or your different nationalities and backgrounds causing you to see things differently? So it depends. It's a very diverse group, I think, but it's all women. I never um, spent so much time with um, peers, international peers. And um, I think I appreciate very much the sharing of opinions and of experiences, um, especially of female leadership experiences um, in the different armed forces. Yes, I do agree with uh, Lali. We've l- lots of different backgrounds, but uh, in lots of points and for many topics, we can see that, uh, in fact, we are not alone in our own country and we, we share lots of uh, and the same values, in fact. What do you find to be the biggest challenge for recruitment these days? Um, Germany, we try to be an attract, uh, attractive employer, and we do everything for this with employer branding, with marketing, to attract more people. So we have the challenge at the moment um, that our um, numbers of servicemen and women rise again. It's hard to compete with the private sector on this uh, thing, on the one hand for the young people, on the other hand, on the other hand for specialists. Uh, from what I've described, you're a human resource manager. So what does that entail? Well, in, in fact, um, recruitment is a problem, a major issue that we have to face too, especially uh, as I uh, deal with uh, flying crews. Uh, lots of companies in France are uh, uh, want to get these crews, so it's an issue. But one of the most important one is to keep people in the in the air force. Uh, so we we are really working on this, try to to get uh, better conditions for them inside institutions, take care of them 
their family. So lots of uh, topics around uh, human resources to just to, to keep this Air Force uh, attractive. One of the challenges I know in Canada, I don't know about other places, is being able to retain women in particular. So why have you uh, two women stayed in your respective militaries? You're, you have advanced educations, you have probably lots of opportunities in the private sector, but you've, you've stayed along to the level of rank of colonel. So you've been there for roughly 20 years? Nearly 25. Don't ask the age. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 22 for me. <laughs> yeah. So why have you stayed? I love my job. I love my job as well. And uh, I do not only have one job, in fact. I have uh, several lives in the, in the Air Force. Uh, in the past, I was a pilot. Uh, I just uh, got into operations in, mostly in Africa, Afghanistan. Afterwards, I, I work in the headquarters as a program officer, so I had some contacts with the procurement agency, with the industries. Then uh, I went abroad. I was posted in the Netherlands, so I work in a multinational environment. Then uh, doing human resources, so lots of different jobs, and uh, I'm, so I'm very happy in, in the Air Force. Now, that's one of the funny things is that in my experience in working with military officers is they have that experience where they, they have many, many jobs over the course of their career. And so on the one hand, it's a very, very interesting life. On the other hand, if your second job is like the best job you've ever, you will ever have and then you have to leave that job, you, know, you can't do the same thing that you fall in love with. For instance, maybe for a pilot, you want to fly, but you have to spend a lot of your job not flying. Obviously, since you've stayed, you found the change to be better than, than, than staying in one spot for a while. But every job is very challenging every time. I like this very much. It's a kind of adventure always to go on new topics and work with new people. And um, I was very lucky always being able to work with uh, great teams. Yeah, same for me. From the beginning, I knew that I would not be a pilot for more than 20 years. So at the very start, I, I knew that once I would have to change and get uh, command and uh, other jobs. So it's not a problem. And in working uh, for the past two weeks with the other women here, have you decided that you want one of their jobs? I think the uh, thing with the space command would be something <laughs> that I'd li really appreciate. <laughs> and i really like to try out, yes, um, and, and learn more about that. But I think it's uh, very interesting to hear about all the experiences the other women d uh, made in their careers and um, to share the opinions about their leadership styles. Indeed. Yeah, yeah exactly. I guess uh, the last question is what I've been asking most of the women is, is, was there a big surprise along the way that something you didn't expect? No, there were not so many uh, surprises. The program is a, a very amazing program, uh, lots of things, and uh, talking about uh, innovation, think tanks, uh, security, and uh, management as well, or leadership. These are all very interesting. So no surprise for me, but uh, I just gather all information to, to grow up. <laughs> What was quite new to me was uh, the talks to the people in Silicon Valley and getting their perspective on um, public-private collaborations and um, especially on how leadership can influence uh, or push um, uh, innovation. That was very interesting for me. So you feel more comfortable now that you're back in the Commonwealth country after hanging around the United States for a, a couple of weeks? Oh no, it's great. It's been great being in the US. We we work really close with with them all the time. So it's been um, it's been a fabulous deep dive into um, into their world. But, um, but now coming into Canada is also super special. We work closely with them as well. So mm. uh, for me, it's great. It's it, everything's just a great treat this trip. Mm, I think you never really feel far away from home when you're in such a group of friends like this. What is the future of the of the Australian Navy? The Australian Navy is going through a um, 
a real redevelopment and reinvigoration of our platforms at the moment. We've got a lot of new shipbuilding happening, so it's really exciting time to be in the Australian Defence Force and particularly in the Navy for shipbuilding projects. For an engineer like me, it opens up so many opportunities to contribute to, to the nation and professionally as an engineer, it's a really exciting time. Canada is the middle, as you've probably heard of or will hear about. It's recapitalizing its fleet, but we're doing it much more slowly and more expensively than you guys are. <laughs> so uh, we're always wondering what we can learn from the Australians. Now, you work in logistics, and they, they always say that amateurs talk tactics and professionals talk logistics. Oh, that's a great, uh, that's a great phrase. I quite like that. Sound. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I like that. Uh, so in the course of your career, you're now the H8, uh, Assistant Chief of Staff for Logistics Operations and Plans. That's pretty much everything. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's um, it, it talks about all the uh, what we call the classes of supply, so everything from food through to fuel, ammunition, spare parts. And for us, it's really exciting because just as Australia is transforming its navy and, and the Canadians are doing similar, uh, the Royal Navy is doing exactly the same again. So we're uh, we're transforming the navy back into carrier strike operations. Our mission is to also uh, deploy units uh, forward presence. We're calling it all around the world, and also to reshape our commando force as well with a you know huge transformation agenda in terms of how can we draw on all this technology that's out there now to do things better, more efficiently, and actually, you know, uh, maintain our status as a as a real contending Navy. And so all of that requires a huge amount of logistic support. So it's a really, really exciting time to be part of that transformation and the lessons and, uh, and the, the conversations we've been having as part of this fellowship absolutely play into that space. So for me, uh, the last two weeks have just been um, an amazing opportunity, both in terms of uh, the organisations and the people we've been speaking to, but also learning from my fellow officers around the room here who are absolutely unbelievable. It's just a, a hugely humbling uh, process to be part of this. I think the other thing about um, the recapitalization of the navies is that we're doing it together, really. So each country is redeveloping and recapitalizing its navies, but there's so much cooperation between our navies, and it's particularly the navies in the room here, you know, France, the UK, America, Australia, uh, New Zealand and Canada, in, all in particular are really working to, together to develop their navies and, and build on the forces that we've got so we can cooperate in the future. So as you've been traveling for the past two weeks, has there been anything that's really been most striking to you, something that really stands out as, oh, this is something the Americans do really badly, or something the Americans do really well that we should learn from? Because we learn from success and we learn from failure. So I don't want to pick on the Americans, although we've already talked to them, so we might as well. I think the uh, the great message that I've taken away from the last two weeks has been um, the importance of alliances. Um, and it doesn't matter whether that's on a national level or between navies or air forces or, or whoever. The common message we are getting wherever we go is the importance of, of alliance and be that equally into the technology space. So the, the commercial, military alliances, everything. Um, that, that to me has been a really... Uh, lovely. I, I'm not surprised, but it's just a lovely reinforcement of, of a message, I'd hope. I suppose in terms of surprise, I'd actually play it the other way. The the number of times we have surprised people uh, as a community of 11 senior officers who will also happen to be female um, arriving at an organisation and we step out of a lift and people go, oh, because they just didn't expect it, especially if we're in uniform. That, that's been interesting. I think... Um relationships really are the most important thing. Um, I I don't think we can underestimate that. But my takeaway and learning from the, the fellowship is not just what we're learning here while we're together, but the friendships that will form and the real rarity of the depth of the friendships that will last for a really long time. It's what we will learn afterwards when we reach out again and connect.
do you feel now an obligation to stay in your military for another five or ten years so that way you can all be networked for another five or ten years? Because if you retire now, it's like this program... Well, I mean, the the job I'm doing is um, is just such great fun and it's such a privilege that I can't see myself leaving anytime soon. But certainly, I I echo absolutely what Rachel's saying. The connections that we've got here, I'll certainly be drawing on them, ladies. I'm just looking around the room now, Uh, (laughs) and and I absolutely hope that they'll do the same. Um, If I can help them as well into the future, that will be absolute pleasure. I think uh, we serve, you know, at at the pleasure of our chiefs, and so staying as long as you need to uh, and uh, contributing really well is is fantastic opportunity but there's nothing lost when great minds like the women in the room here transition into industry you know the security community and the defense community is bigger than the defense forces and that's a really important thing to acknowledge that we don't do this on our own and so nothing is lost and you guys aren't going to disappear because no. you're obviously excellent at what you do now and you'll, you'll get really interesting positions post-military mm. as well sure thanks again for coming to the battle weather podcast and good luck on the rest of your travels Thanks so much. If listeners want to learn more about the fellowship, perhaps apply for the fellowship in the future, you can visit the Peace with the Women Fellowship webpage at halifaxtheforum.org. Great. Thank you very much.